The New Testament reading is coming from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be true? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, We give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for this moment, this occasion to gather as your people and to worship you. Uh, And we pray that as we sit with your scriptures, that you would be with us, that you would bless us, that you would open our minds and our hearts to love you more, to love one another more, and to become more and more reflective of your glorious image in the world. So be with us, we pray now, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as the uh, effects of the pandemic in this country and in this city are beginning to subside and we're beginning to come out of hiding and gather again in ways that feel increasingly normal, 
uh, we want to spend this summer really uh, focusing on coming together as a community, connecting and reconnecting and really becoming one church, Resurrection Philadelphia. We've been through a lot right? We've all been through a lot. We've just lived through 14 months of pandemic life. We've gone through a church merger. Uh, There's not one of us here who can look at what we are now and what we're experiencing as the same as what you knew before. We've gone through a lot. And so there's a lot of coming together and connecting that, um, that we get to do, that we need to do, that I'm looking forward to, that I hope you're looking forward to. And so to focus on this connecting as community, we're going to have opportunities really all summer long for the whole church to gather. Um, You know, last Sunday we had a beautiful gathering uh, over in West Philly where we got to celebrate and send Tuck and Stacy Bartholomew. And um, it was a really rich time. And I got to see some of you for the first time in a long time. And it was lovely. And if I do say so myself, I think we celebrated and sent them in style. So thanks to the many people who contributed and worked really hard to make that day possible. It was lovely. But there are going to be a lot more opportunities as well to be together this summer. And so for one thing, as the restrictions in the city are are lifting, uh, we no longer need to limit attendance in worship. And so please come, especially those of you at home uh, and especially those who maybe haven't yet come back. It's lovely to see faces in the room uh, and to be together. Um, you know, we're, we, we know, and I've heard some people say too, it's like, well, can I bring my kids? Like, is that going to ruin the live stream? Like, My kids have been chattering and loud this whole time. It's fine. Just come on back. This is family. It's going to be loud. It's going to be chattery. uh, And we will continue to figure out how to best serve kids and families in this time as we we do continue to wait for vaccines to be approved for the under 12 crowd. Uh, We want to keep uh, doing everything we can, especially knowing that some of our families have made commitments with daycares and preschools where they can only come if people are masked inside and following certain protocols. So we want to be conscientious of everybody uh, and and make sure that we are as accessible as possible to everyone uh, who wants to be able to come uh, and and gather for worship. So we're going to keep doing that. We'll keep communicating about what we're doing as things become clearer. Uh, But then next Sunday, we're going to have an open house here. So especially for those who are are at home uh, who have never been in this building, come and check it out. We're going to have the front doors open on 17th Street. We're going to have coffee with your name on it. Just join us. I hope that'll be a great time and you can even take a tour of this building. And then we're going to have opportunities to gather in West Philly too, where we have a work day at the Woodland property on June 12th, followed by a picnic in Clark Park. So there's an opportunity to see that space and do some gardening if you've never been over there. Let's get together and be in the places where we are. We're also going to have some meetups in Fairmount Park in July, August, and on Labor Day. And so we've got some things planned. And let's get together. Let's be together. It's so good to see you. And let's get used to being together again as a community. In that same spirit of focusing on coming together and being together, um, we're starting a new, church, a new sermon series for the summer that we're calling The Ties That Bind Us, in which we're going to consider just some of the basic beliefs and practices and values that are central to who we are and who we aspire to be as this church as Resurrection Philadelphia. We've been so scattered and so disconnected for so long. Let's spend the summer reflecting on what connects us, reflecting on what draws us together and the glue that binds us as a community. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a quote from St. Augustine about what makes a people 
a people. He says, a people, we may say, is a gathered multitude of rational beings united by agreeing to share the things they love. The better the things, the better the people. The worse the things, the worse their agreement to share them. United by agreeing to share the things they love. That's what makes a people a people, according to the wisdom of St. Augustine. So what love do we agree to share as a church? And what does that agreement and that shared love look like? In practice, that's what we're going to be considering together this summer as we regather, re-engage, and renew our shared life in this context as Resurrection Philadelphia. And so we begin today by focusing our attention on the beautiful and bewildering mystery that is God the Trinity, God the three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, a centerpiece of our confession of faith. And so today, as we've said, is Trinity Sunday. It's the feast day that was assigned to this first Sunday after Pentecost because as we trace God's movement through history, we see that it was only after God gave the Spirit, His Spirit, to His people at Pentecost that the church began to discern, articulate, and eventually proclaim to the world this great doctrine of God the Trinity, which is one of the great mysteries and pillars of the Christian faith. Or we might say, to pick up language from the Gospel of John, it is only as the spirit of truth began to lead God's people further into an apprehension of all truth, the truth of who God is, that God's people began to make some sense of what God had revealed about himself in Jesus, that God is both one God, yet also God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. And what's so beautiful about this revelation of God is that it is as as we come to know God as Trinity that we really begin to get to know God as love, as one for whom love is not just an aspect of what God does, but is actually at the very core of who God is. God is love. Father, Son, and Spirit existing eternally in mutuality and unity as one God, dynamic and moving, giving and receiving love. Bishop Robert Barron puts it this way. He says, the the distinctive Christian claim is that God is love. A Jew or Muslim would say God loves, God loves the world, and that's true. We say the same thing. But the radical Christian difference is that we say God is love. It's not just something that God does, it's who God is. And the claim that God is love is ground for the teaching that God is triune. No Christian wants to deny that God is one, and yet this one God of Israel has revealed himself to be a play between lover, beloved, and love. What an absolutely beautiful image, and what a powerful one for us to take in this morning on Trinity Sunday. God's not static. God's not some abstract idea. God is not even something to believe in or not believe in. God is a personal being to be known. In fact, a tri-personal being, an eternal whirlwind of movement, activity, and relational engagement. And this is the God who made us, who made humanity to bear God's image in the world, God the Trinity.
And so this morning, I just want us to reflect on three simple questions. What is this doctrine of the Trinity? Where does it come from? And what does it mean for us? And as we do that, I'm going to try to ignore the bird that's flying around in the ceiling. Maybe you can too. See, you only get that treat if you come in person. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? The doctrine of the Trinity is basically a human attempt to describe God as he revealed himself to us in Jesus. It's like a verbal portrait, we might say, painted with human words that despite their genius and skill are still inadequate for the task of, at hand. I think of it almost as like, like a crayon drawing that children would make of their parents that is adorable and you put it on the fridge and it's the best that they can do. And, you know, even though my head is purple and three times the size of my body, it's still, you know, bearded and bald and kind of in the ballpark and re revelatory of who I am. And I delight in it because my kid did it. And, and it's an act of love and depiction of me. And I've used this illustration before of, of the book Flatland. Um, perhaps you read it. I remember I came across it in high school by Edwin Abbott, a book that comes from like the late 19th century. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a book where all the characters are two-dimensional shapes and they live in a world that is a two-dimensional world called Flatland. And so a square is the main character. But at one point in the story, square encounters a sphere, right? A three-dimensional character who lives in a place called Spaceland. But square, being a two-dimensional creature, can't comprehend sphere. And so what does square do? He just describes sphere using the language and the categories available in a two-dimensional world. Sphere appears to be a circle that, as it passes through, gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and then smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's how square experiences and understands sphere, right? And we should probably think of the doctrine of the Trinity as something like that. It's the inadequate attempt of finite humans to explain our encounter with the infinite God. Our doctrine of the Trinity does not explain God in any kind of precise or exhaustive way. It is a human approximation of the truth of who God is. It's our best attempt to put words around a great and incomprehensible reality, this mystery of God the Trinity. And yet this verbal portrait is one that the Christian church has agreed to keep as our official portrait of the God we love. A portrait, although it does not and cannot portray God exactly as God is, it does portray God truthfully and faithfully according to how God has revealed himself to us. So what is the portrait, right? What, what is this picture of the doctrine of the Trinity? It's just this, that God is one substance in whom are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things. The Son, being eternally begotten of the Father, is the word, wisdom, and image of the Father. The Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Yet nevertheless, these distinctions, they don't divide God into three, nor does their unity of substance blend or blur the distinctions among the three persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. Likewise, the Spirit is neither Father nor Son. Yet, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. All three persons equally God at the same time. Not like different modes of God's existence or operation. God's not some kind of shapeshifter shape who expresses himself in these different ways at different times. Yet these three persons are also not three gods. God is one. And this is a mystery. 
We don't claim to know how this works, but it's what Christians have confessed for nearly 2,000 years, and it's the doctrine we celebrate and confess afresh today, not because we somehow missed the obvious that three and one are different numbers and inherently not equal to each other, but, we, but because we embrace the mystery of what God has revealed in Christ and we accept the fact that our limited human ability to perceive, comprehend, and describe reality, that that limited ability cannot possibly determine the boundaries of what is or can be real. Which brings us to our second question. So where does this doctrine come from then? Well, there's no single proof text in the Bible that you can point to that gives us the doctrine of the Trinity in some nice and tidy way. Uh, there, are, there aren't even like a nice little assortment of texts that taken together say all that our doctrine says. There are many, many texts that describe God as one God or that describe the three persons in some detail, like the text we just read this morning from Romans and from the Gospel of John, that show us Jesus's relationship with his Father, and the unique work of Jesus as the Son who took on flesh and accomplished the work of redemption on our behalf through his suffering, death, and resurrection, or that show us the unique work of the Spirit in applying to us all that Jesus has accomplished, right, and all that the Father has given the Son. But the doctrine of the Trinity, as we have it today, it comes to us as the fruit of the process that Jesus speaks about in that passage from John's Gospel about the Spirit of truth leading God's people into all truth. Our doctrine comes from this process of the early churches receiving and wrestling with what God had revealed about himself in Jesus. This process of working out how to hold together like what they saw as non-negotiables, the things that must be said about God based on what God has said. And the first, the first of which is really the long-time confession of faith of the people of Israel, the Jewish people, Jesus himself, this hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's on one hand, an, an immovable object, so to speak, a non-negotiable in the confession of faith. But then secondly, there's all this kind of stuff that we see in the two texts we just read, right? And plenty of other texts. This clear divinity of both Jesus and the Holy Spirit but also the clear distinction between them as well as the distinction between each of them and God, or in some cases, the Father. And so as we read the story of Jesus and Nicodemus from the Gospel of John, what do we see? Well, loads of stuff, a lot more than we have time to unpack in its entirety, but we see Jesus self-identifying as God's only Son, right? The one given by God to be the Savior of the world. We see Jesus claiming for himself this son of man title, which harkens back to the apocalyptic vision from the Old Testament prophet Daniel, this figure who comes riding on clouds. And Jesus, we see him describing himself as one who has descended from heaven and is therefore uniquely able to speak of heavenly things. We also see Jesus explain to Nicodemus that entering God's kingdom requires some sort of being born from above by water and spirit and that the spirit that does this birthing from above is more of a who than a what, right? An entity that has its own will and the freedom to go wherever it wants to go, like the wind that can't be contained or controlled. And as we sit with passages like the one we just read from Romans, we see God, Jesus, and the spirit all working in concert for our good right? As God establishes peace with us through Jesus. 
and pours out God's love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. These are ways of talking about God that appear all the time in the Gospels and in the other books of the New Testament. And then there are the times where Jesus speaks about God as his Father, right? And then teaches his disciples to pray to our Father as we piggyback on Jesus' own relationship with God. And Jesus commissions the church to make disciples. How? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so all these things, our spiritual ancestors in the early church, they wrestled with how to speak about them in coherent ways. And the Spirit was faithful to lead them. And the formulation they officially finally arrived at which Christians all around the world receive today, which we will even confess uh, later today, is the statement that they formalized in the fourth century, first at Nicaea in 325 and then at Constantinople in 381, which is not to say that the church just came up with this thing like 300 years after Jesus. That's a popular narrative that's good for like clickbait and boosting book sales, but the history just doesn't check out. That's not how it happened. The truth is that these councils clarified and codified that which most Christians at the time had been believing, professing, and praying all along. The doctrine of the Trinity, it comes from Scripture. It comes from the mouths of Jesus and his apostles. It comes from the confession of the early church and the discernment of church councils. It comes from the spirit of truth leading God's people into all truth, guiding our human attempts to speak the truth about who God is, God the Trinity. It's our delightful human little crayon drawing of God. And I'd like to think God thinks it's cute. And we celebrate it because it's our very best work. It's beautiful. It's good. It's our very best. So what does this doctrine mean for us? This is a difficult question because the doctrine was like not ever meant to be a starting point for a whole lot of positive creative work. Um, it was really for the purpose of like, how do we worship God? How do we worship Jesus without worshiping a creature? Because that's idolatry. How do we work this stuff out, right? Who's creature? Who's creator? Um, it was meant to do that, to say the things we must say and to do the things we must do, but to not say and to not do the things we must not. So that's a hard starting place. What does it mean for us today? But I think one of the great payoffs of this doctrine is that it helps us to know God. This is the God who made you. It's the God who made us. This is the God who knows you and is with you. And this is the God we worship, God the Trinity. And I also think it helps us to know ourselves because God the Trinity has made us in his image to be like him in the world. This God who is love, who's relational to the core who is eternally, actively, and dynamically giving and receiving love, this God made us to bear his image and be like him in the world. And this is so profoundly important for us, I think, to grapple with, not just in our individual lives, but in our communal life as the church. Erwin Entz a black pastor who serves in a predominantly white denomination and a scholar whose studies focus on practices that cultivate 
the so-called beautiful community of multicultural and multiracial expressions of the church, writes this. Fragmentation, division, disharmony, and disunity are our story, but they're not God's. His is the story of beauty, and it is most profoundly seen in his communal life. To say that the Lord is beautiful is to say that he is beautiful community. His beautiful, simple love is expressed in perfect agreement between Father, Son, and Spirit. It is expressed in the way the Son defers to the Father. We see it in the way the Father supports the Son. We experience it in the way the Spirit proceeds from the Father and is sent by the Son. God is the apex of unchanging beauty as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternally existent, mutually glorifying, loving, honoring, and supporting diverse community, a never-ending, beautifully choreographed divine dance. I love that. Do you hear what he's saying? That living into our identity as image bearers of the triune God gives us a better way to be human in the world. Our doctrine of the Trinity helps us understand that we exist because of God's love and we exist in order to love. We exist for God and for one another, not just for ourselves. The communion of God in and with himself as Father, Son, and Spirit is the source of our life. It's the source of our vitality. It's the energy and power of our prayers. It's the very space where heaven and earth converge in the presence of God, and it is the place where God calls us to live each and every day. This incomprehensible mystery of the Trinity, it's something that touches down in the ordinary space of our ordinary lives. And C.S. Lewis describes it very well in, in Mere Christianity as he writes this. You may ask, if we cannot imagine a three-personal being, what's the good of talking about him? Well, there isn't any good talking about him. The thing that matters is being actually drawn into that three-personal life. And that may begin at any time. Tonight, if you like. What I mean is this. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God, God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he's trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing on him, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So the whole threefold life of the three-personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary Christian is saying his prayers. When we come to know God as Trinity, we come to know God not only as almighty God up there beyond us, but as ever-present God down here with us and as indwelling God in here among us. Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson talks about God the Trinity as this dance, Father, Son, and Spirit, indwelling and engaging one another in this ever-moving, active, beautiful dance of giving and receiving love. And this dance, he says, is the source and pattern for our life together in fellowship with our Father in the Son and by the Spirit. And this vision of our life together in the body of Christ and in our families and in our relationships is the dance. It's this dance. 
Dance with God. Dance with one another. Knowing one another and being known. Giving and receiving honor. Unleashing our creativity and gifts in the full-time work of loving and enjoying God and others and receiving the same from them. And Thompson tells this story. He says, imagine that you come home from work at the end of a long day only to find that your three best friends in the whole world have come to surprise you and there they are. And they're sitting around your kitchen table when you arrive at home and they say to you, hey, we were, we were just talking about you and we just had to come to see you. We just had to come be with you. And Thompson says this should be for us the daily image of the Trinity in our lives. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit swept up in mutual enjoyment of you, attending to you, wanting to be with you, and showing up in the ordinary space of your life. The dance, the delight, What difference would it make in your life today if you were to wake up to the presence of God the Trinity with you? What difference would it make in the way you show up with a neighbor if you began to dwell in this dance of God and delight in showing up to dance with others? What difference would it make in those places of conflict and stress in your life, that difficult relationship where you just feel stuck, or the frustrating situation that you're in at work or in your family, or that looming cloud of uncertainty around what the MRI is going to show or how the interview is going to go? What difference would it make in your life as you go into those places caught up in the dance of God, the play of lover, beloved, and love, enveloping and enlivening you, the creator's breath breathing in you, the redeemer's wounds healing you, the father's arms holding you, the power of God sustaining you, the, loving, the love of God loving you toward love, giving and receiving the love and life of God. As so we come to the communion table today, this is the communion into which Jesus invites us communion with God and one another in this dance of love. And as we go from this place back out into the, into the various places where we live and where we work and where we socialize, know this, you, we don't just leave with some new thoughts to think, right? We don't just leave with some warm, fuzzy feelings that we're now stirred up and that's great. We go with the very presence of God, Father, Son, and Spirit who summons you, sustains you, and sends you into the world. You leave here in the presence of the triune God. May God give us grace to live in the dance and to delight in him as he delights in us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.